0: Good morning. Welcome to Ramp Church Online. Uh, If you're new to Ramp Church, my name's Joe, and along with my wife Stacy, who you just heard from, we lead this awesome community. And the best thing about Ramp Church are the people who are actually uh, watching alongside of you. They're joining the stream. So be sure to make yourself known in the comments. Maybe let people know where you're watching from. If this is your very first time, a huge warm welcome to you, Ram Church family. As you know, we're in the middle of a chapter called the missional life. And when someone is fully living the missional life, it looks like Jesus's life. But what does that mean? It ultimately means that we're aware of what God's up to in the world around us, and uh, we're sensitive enough to join alongside of what he's doing. So today we're going to continue this amazing Chapter. So last week we talked about evangelism. What does it mean to share the message that we believe is the hope of the world with people who we care about, people who are in our world? And this week we're going to talk about justice. So I feel um, I feel like I've sorted it, guys. I, I have figured out how to sort the entire population of the planet into two categories. One category are people who complain about their food at restaurants. And the other category are people who don't. Okay, So the other day I was eating with somebody at lunch because, uh, thankfully, we can do that now. We can go to restaurants and eat with other people. And it wasn't until halfway through the meal that uh, I found out that the other person was actually eating a dish that they didn't order. Uh, Are you one of those? Like, like They just felt weird about, like, uh, this isn't actually what I ordered. And I'm like, what? Wait a second, um, wait, why would you just eat a meal if you didn't order it? Uh, if that's you watching, what is it? Like you don't want to like, I don't know, maybe they're having a bad day. It's like we make up this whole story about them in their mind. Maybe they, maybe they just had a, got a car accident on the way here and they're just having, they, they found out this is their last week of work and I just don't want to ruin their day. I mean, some of you are like, oh my goodness, if, if, there's, one, if there's not enough peas in the bowl, it's like, no. I need a whole new meal. I need a whole new meal. Not only that, I ain't paying for it, and I want you to give me stock in the company restaurant. Okay, my 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 wife is more in that category. Um, Her favorite uh, question is, "What are you going to give me for this inconvenience?" That is so. Which which one of those are you in? Now today we're talking about justice, and there's something in all of us. That is a cry for justice, a cry to make wrong things right. C.S. Lewis, uh, of course, uh, a famous Christian author um, of the past generation, he, he was actually um, a strong atheist before he came to Christ. And probably the thing that he claims kept him the most away from the idea of faith was injustice in the world around him. He looked around and he couldn't understand why things were not what they were supposed to be. And this, this is what he said. He says, my argument against God was that the universe seemed so cruel and unjust. But how had I got this idea of just and unjust? Lewis is talking about when he was kind of on that turning point. A man does not call a line crooked unless he has some idea of a straight line. What was I comparing this universe with when I called it unjust? If the whole show was bad and senseless, from A to Z, so to speak, why did I, who was supposed to be part of the show, find myself in such a violent reaction against it? Lewis is talking about... Um, his whole life, he looked at the world, uh, the cruelty in the world, um, what was obviously unjust about the world. And it made him question this seeming God of justice. How could there be a God of justice when there's so much injustice in the world? But as, as you see Lewis describing the process, what actually started waking him up to the fact that maybe there is a real God is, what is it on the inside of him that's telling him this isn't right in the first place? In other words, if this world is how things are meant to be, he wouldn't find them unjust. Uh, King Solomon, the ancient Jewish writer, wrote it like this. He says in the book of Ecclesiastes that eternity has been written onto our hearts. And he's getting at this same idea. He's trying to say the reason why you can't even look at the world around you and you can come up with this idea of this isn't how it should be is because there's something on the inside of you that's telling you how it should be. That's the drive for justice. The Ecclesiastes and, 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 and C.S. Lewis himself would go on to say, "That is actually evidence that there is a God. The fact that there is a law on your heart that you're comparing the world against shows that there is a lawgiver. Who wrote it there. So we're going to look at justice. Is God actually working? Is God actually working? Justice. Is God actually at work in the world around us? We see these two themes, uh, justice and mercy, all throughout the scriptures. Um, my two youngest daughters are really close in age, uh, less than two years apart, and um they both have quite strong personalities so that, that leads to quite lively discussions in the Reeser household and I, but i remember when they were quite young and my middle daughter especially has like this like drive for justice like she she has this drive to make everything wrong right Everything, she wants to make sure it is fair. That is like her first, that's like her first response to everything. If we're doing dessert, if we're doing screen time, whatever it is, it's almost like a millimeter measuring tool comes out to make sure every piece of the cake is exactly fair for every single person. But it's been in, it's been in her, even since she was little. I, and there was one, one uh, time I remember when she was young that her and her younger sister got into like a little scuffle. And she came to Stacy and I to tell on her sister. Well, then we started to reprimand her sister. And then it's like something in her rose up and she was upset that we were reprimanding her sister. So what started off as justice, now this mercy heart starts to come along. And then she starts to go, don't reprimand her. You're being too hard on her. Wait wait a second. Aren't you the one who who was complaining about her in the first place? And that is so, that's the nature, that's the heart of God, even in this little body, this desire for mercy, this desire for justice. But today, we're looking at this, this topic of justice. It's in you, it's in me. We look around, I mean, even right now in the middle of this global pandemic, you know, where, what's all this about? Where is, where is justice in the middle of this? And this question is so huge in all of us. Why isn't God doing something about our messed up world? Why isn't God doing something about our messed up world? Now, we could literally talk for the rest of the year. We could, we could dedicate every Sunday to that question, but um, I'm, I'm gonna try to squeeze some thoughts in the next few minutes for you right here. And I have two quick answers for you. Why isn't God doing something about our messed up world? The first answer is this because God's not into domination, He's into invitation. You know, it's amazing. Our modern sensibilities, sometimes there's like conflict. There's contradiction in our modern sensibilities. We couldn't stand the idea of a God who wanted to control us. Like that, oh, that idea, it, like it just repels us, doesn't it? Like the idea that there is a God who, like, commands me what to do, who tells me, who who forces me to even do something. It like fights against everything in our modern, our postmodern sensibilities. That no, we're autonomous. We're we 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 are decisive about our own journey, and yet we're confused when God doesn't step in and control people. Uh, you don't realize you can't have it both ways. We can't have a God who allows us to have the freedom to choose our own path in life, uh, but also allows us to have the freedom uh, to be cruel to others. It's it's the same environment. You, you can't have it both ways. God's not into domination. He's into the invitation. The, there's an invitation to step into the justice of God today. There's an invitation for us to see things from God's perspective. There's an invitation for us to step into relationship with God. That is an invitation. God isn't, God isn't going to crawl inside your heart and force you to do something. What he's going to do is he's going to do what, what Scripture tells us all throughout Scripture. Look before you. There is a door to life and a door to death. Yeah. Choose wisely. Wow. Choose wisely. And then he goes a step further. He actually gives us the Holy Spirit to be our ever-present help, our guide. The, original, the, the word in the original Greek, one of the words that commonly describes the Holy Spirit in the New Testament, is one who stands beside. He's your counselor. He's your comforter. Good. What is it? It's the, it's, the, it's the invitational heart of God that's saying, I'm not, I'm not going to domineer you. What I am going to do, though, is give you an invitation. It's an invitation to life, life to the fullest. It's not an invitation. Don't confuse that with comfort. Uh, it's an invitation into relationship yeah. with God. Uh, so that's the first reason why God isn't doing something about a messed up world. He's not in the denomination. He's in the invitation. But the second reason is is this, and this is what we're going to spend the rest of this mass message unpacking. This is He is, <laughs> He is doing something about this messed up world. He's at work actually right now. Well, what is the mission of life about? The mission of life is actually seeing, having eyes to see what He is up to, and then having the courage and the love and the compassion to be on board, to hop in the mix put skin in the game. He is at work in this messed up world. He's already here. How is he at work? You ask. I'm glad you asked. God is on a redemption project. The redemption project is about looking at the world that we have and and taking it towards full redemption, full restoration. Full new creation, to use a biblical phrase. I love this this Tim Keller quote uh, right here. Everything sad is going to come untrue. He actually stole that from Samwise Gamgee. Any of you Lord of the Rings mm-hmm. folks? Everything sad is going to come untrue, and it will somehow be greater for having once been broken and lost. Have you ever have you ever lost something that was like really dear to you, only to like a few weeks later find it again? Like. Isn't there something about that event that makes you value the thing you thought you lost even more? That's, that's what Tolkien's getting, excuse me, that's what, that's what Keller's getting into here. And this is actually a Dostoyevsky uh, idea in the, the second half of that. It will somehow be greater for having been broken and lost in the first place. God is on a redemption process. The, the New Testament scholar Tom Wright calls it the road to new creation. God is redeeming all of creation. He started with Jesus, raising Jesus from the dead. Uh, But then he's he's moving out from Jesus, and he's on this redemption process. And before I get into actually unpacking justice a bit, I want to show you what this redemption project looks like. And I'm going to talk about it in four ways. And these ways are a bit wordy. But then I'm going I'm to get visual to, to, help, to help us understand it. So God redeems first. Here's how God redeems the world around us, all of creation. Show, show me that first. one. He, he redeems individuals through personal sanctification unto maturity. He redeems individuals through personal sanctification unto maturity. Now, that's, that's kind of wordy, I know, but let me unpack it. Personal sanctification is this Bible word. We, 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 we say it a lot at Ramp Church, and the reason is because the Bible says it a lot. And so I want you to become familiar with it and understand what it means. Ultimately, what that means is God is all about recreating you into who he originally created you to be. What, is, what, what does that process look like? He's healing the hurts that this broken world or broken relationships caused you. He's healing even the self-understanding maybe that was broken along the way. He's setting you free from, from um, anything that would hold you back. Hindrances, uh, addictions, uh, darkness. He's, he's on a freedom project with your life. And he's bringing you into maturity. I, the, the reason I think that's a key word, maturity, is because it's not comfort. I know salvation in our Western context means no concerns it means everything I have everything I want I have that's 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 the salvation that's the self-salvation project of western culture but how many know that if I had everything I wanted I probably would not be a person you'd want to be around because it would do something on the inside of me that would break my character and ultimately, we call people like that spoiled, don't we? Entitled. We, we, we don't really like it. So I don't know why we're trying to attain the thing we know that ultimately destroys people on the inside. But what the Bible says is uh, sanctification leads us into maturity. And maturity is the you that God sees when He spoke you into existence. When He created you, He saw the fully whole, the fully free, the fully in-purpose version of you. That's maturity. One of the reasons Jesus came is to give us an example of what a whole, fully mature human looks like. He's the firstborn of many brethren. So the first step in God's redemption project is individuals. The second step is this, relationships. He redeems relationships. So he's going to start in your heart, he's going to start in my heart, he's continuing in our hearts, and then he moves out to relationships. And the way he redeems relationships is through spirit-infused relationships. Community. this is why we have communities at ramp church if you're not in a community i hope that you're on this first journey right all of us should be but you need to make this second journey where there's relationships in your life that god wants to redeem he wants to redeem the the us and them part of our lives that there is not this brokenness that dictates the way you do relationships and it isn't just about relationships you have those at work right you have those at uni Uh, All of us, you have this in your family, all of us have relationships. It's about relationships that are filled with the Holy Spirit. The same Spirit that lived in Jesus can fill our community. So God redeems individuals, relationships. Number three, God redeems groups and spaces through compassionate engagement. This is your world, basically. So if you look at your workplace, if you look at your your university, you look at your school, you look at your family, what's your world? God's redeeming that group of people, and he's also redeeming physical spaces. I'm thinking about our serve days that we do at Ramp Church, brighten up days. He's literally redeeming physical spaces, and once those spaces are redeemed, they declare the goodness of God. They declare there's something, there's something so beautiful it can't be comprehended by just understanding material or natural perspectives. He is redeeming spaces. So he redeems individuals, relationships, groups, and spaces. Number four, he redeems cities and nations through vocational and public participation. Here's where your acts of activism live. Uh, you social activists, social justice; those those live here. Public participation, but also vocational participation. So this is where systemic injustice gets changed. And this, and some of you, that's your paid everyday job, and y- it's the work of your hands that's shaping the future that God sees and God is destined. So that's really wordy. Let's look at it from a visual perspective. Thank you. Here we go. Visual perspective. Me in the middle. So this, these are the rings of redemption that God, God's doing. Now, why do I have my church here? Because for most of us, the catalyst for the sanctification God's doing in my life was the people of God. I came into a faith community. Maybe that's you today. Maybe you're exploring faith. I'm so glad you're with us today. I, I've, I am convinced that the best place to explore faith is in a people who are, who are uh, uh, surrounded around faith, belief in God, and who have... Been impacted by it, uh, so the the personal sanctification project in you has started uh, most likely with experience with the people of God. Uh, Romans tells us, how can they believe if there's if they haven't heard a preacher? How can they preach if they haven't been sent? That's the people of God. That's the church. So the church is the catalyst to start God's work to lead you to a place of personal justification and then to start the process of sanctification in your life but the next ring of influence are your relationships okay that's spirit infused community the next ring is your world that's groups and spaces that god's redeeming and then ultimately my city and those those rings obviously get lighter and lighter the further from you because you have less impact as an individual over what happens in your city than you do as an individual of what happens to you inside your own life right So how how do you, how how do then we affect the city? Well, like this. Look at this next slide. We get together. (laughs) That's how we do it. Well, when all of our circles combine, then you can see the bits that overlap become glowing white. And that is citywide revival. The way that God redeems cities is when the people of God allow the redemption project of God to have its full rule and reign inside their own life that leaks out, it spreads out to the relationships which spreads out to the groups and spaces in their life which spreads out to the cities and then when we get together as the people of God what happens, that's what we call citywide revival. That is when there's spiritual revival and cultural renewal. The city is made better for every single citizen why because the people of God what, what uh, Jesus would call in the Sermon on the Mount, the salt of the earth have brought seasoning to the culture around us. This is when the lost are finding life-giving faith in Jesus. the bound those of us who, who are who have struggles, hang-ups from our past, we're finding freedom we're being equipped for purpose we're seeing what has got up to in the world we're joining it and we see him moving uh, across. The earth. This is God's redemption process. And your life is about being a part of this process. The other day, our friends James and Becky Ladron were over at our house uh, because we can do that too now. Yay, thanks. Thanks uh, for loosening lockdown. And um, our kids and uh, their oldest, Justice, were playing basketball at the basketball court. And um, Cameron was, was over there. Cameron, who, li- who lives with us, was there with the kids. And they're all playing, they're playing basketball. And Justice, in the middle of the basketball court, he's just playing basketball. And he just yells. There's other people around. He just yells randomly, My dad's biggest fear is snakes and wasting his life. <laughs> Now, if you know James or you've experienced uh, James's ministry or his preaching or prayer storm, the ministry that he leads, you know that that is not a surprise to anybody. But the fact that his son would just like choose to yell that out in the middle of a basketball court in a park, I'm not really sure. But it's hilarious. What? That, that is obviously leaking out of James for it to even get in his kid, that his kid would just, just come to his mind. My dad's biggest fear is snakes and wasting his life. Where's that fear coming from? Or what is that? James has gotten this revelation of God's redemption project, and he's signing up for it. What's the mission of life? It's when, it's when your whole life is now consumed with being a part of that project. Yeah. Individuals, relationships, groups and spaces, cities and nations. This isn't just a self-salvation project, guys. This isn't just about us becoming better people. I can assure you it isn't just that. Let's not reduce the gospel to that. God is up to something in the earth and we are called to be a part of it. You are called to be a part of it. Let's talk about justice for a bit. I wanna take us to a a chapter I introduced to you, Ramp Church, last year, and I wanna revisit it because I think it's so powerful, and we're talking about the topic of justice, it's key, and that's Isaiah chapter 58. We're gonna read um, the first uh, seven verses in that chapter, And before we start reading, let me just catch you up on where we're at in the story of Israel. Israel, um, God's people um, in the Old Testament here, they have had some serious problems, just a lot of struggles uh, in their city, in their nation, and there's been a lot of war. And Jerusalem, their capital city, is in ruins. Now, it's not just their capital city, uh, but it's also the place where From their perspective, God dwells. God dwells in the temple that they had built there. And that's in shambles. The city's in shambles. They're in a rough place. And they are, when we catch up in Isaiah 58, uh, the second half of Isaiah is all about this this redemption process of God's people trying to rebuild Jerusalem. And then we have prophets, people who are speaking God's word, who come in and are declaring, here's what God's perspective, here's his opinion on what you're doing and so, one of the things that, as God's people start to rebuild Jerusalem, now it'd been generations, so they're trying to figure this stuff out again. It would be, it would be like if um, every church, you know, was completely destroyed, and our city was, uh, our cities in this nation, you know, kind of lost sight of what was Christianity, and then we discovered, you know, old recordings, uh, old old Bibles, and we started to read them again. And that's kind of where where Israel's at, and they're starting to rebuild, and then God's prophets speak in the middle of that. And I just want to take you to Isaiah 58, and, and we're going to learn a bit about what Israel looked like in the middle of their redemption process, and I think there's going to be a message for you and I uh, about some, some maybe traps that we can get caught in. So, God is saying this to Isaiah, his prophet. Shout it aloud and don't hold back. Raise your voice like a trumpet. Declare to my people. Now, God is saying, I want you to yell this. So what what is he saying? He's basically saying, Isaiah, I want you to rent some billboards. I want you to put some sponsored posts on Facebook and Instagram. I want you to make t-shirts and paint it on the street. Like wherever you go in Manchester, you're going to see the word I'm about to send to my people. That's what he's saying to his prophet. Do whatever it takes to get the word out. Don't be quiet about this. Declare to my people their rebellion and to the descendants of Jacob, he's saying, and to my people their sins. Now he's about to unpack what are their rebellion and sins and and that's going to be insightful for us. For day after day, they seek me out. Hey, that's, that's a good thing, right? They seem eager to know my ways. Ramp Church, I hope you and I are in that, that position. I want to be a part of a faith community who's seeking God out, who's eager to know God's ways. I mean, that's, that's good stuff. As if they were a nation that does what is right and has not forsaken the commands of its God. They ask me for just decisions. So there are people of prayer. I want to be a people of prayer. It's a a huge core value here at the ramp. They ask me for just decisions and seem eager for God to come near them. So they're a worshiping community. They're a praying community. They're an eager, passionate community. They're seeking God in spiritual ways. And then God is parroting. He's speaking for them when he says, Why have we fasted, they say. And you've not seen it, God. Why have we humbled ourselves and you've not noticed? Yet on the day of your fasting, God says, you do as you please. In other words, you may seek me, but you're still your own God and exploit all your workers and you treat other people poorly. Your fasting ends in quarreling and strife and in striking each other with wicked fists, you're not being really nice. I mean, you're treating, you're treating people bad. You can't fast as you do today and expect your voice to be heard on high. This is telling us, Ramp Church, that there are actually things that we can omit from our lives. And it actually keeps our prayers from being heard in heaven. Well, this is a tough truth. Um, I, I, wish, I wish I didn't have to preach on tough truths, but the thing is they're in the Bible, and, and, and we need to be people of God who want to know the whole, the full counsel of God's Word. And what he's saying is your fasting is ending, but I don't see any change in the way you live. I don't see any way change in the way you treat the world around you and the way you treat other people. You cannot fast as you do today and expect your voice to be heard on high. Is this the kind of fast... God says, I have chosen only a day for people to humble themselves? Is it only for bowing one's head like a reed and for lying in sackcloth and ashes, all religious practices in that that day? Is that what you call a fast, a day acceptable to the Lord? Is not this the kind of fasting I've chosen? Now God's saying, here's what I wish you'd done. To loose the chains of injustice to untie the cords of the yoke, to set the oppressed free and break every yoke. Is it not to share your food with the hungry and to provide the poor wanderer with shelter? When you see the naked, to clothe them and not to turn away from your own flesh and blood. This is a serious, serious chapter. I know this is heavyweight, guys. I get that. But I want us to put before us God's vision for what His people are meant to look like. It's not a call to perfection, but it is a call to have an accurate vision of who we're meant to be as the people of God. And this theme is all throughout the Old Testament. Let's look at the, what the prophet Zechariah says. Isaiah is not the only one to talk about this. Zechariah says this. This is what the Lord Almighty said. Administer true justice, show mercy and compassion to one another. Do not, do not oppress the widow or the fatherless, the foreigner or the poor. Do not plot evil against each other. This, these four uh, categories, groupings of people, are all through the biblical testimony. And you can think of when you're looking at... Um, who, who is the Bible uniquely concerned about? We're going we're to talk about that in a minute. It's these four categories. Widow, widows, orphans, foreigners, refugees, and the poor. Those four categories, when God thinks about justice, that is who he is in his mind pertaining to injustice. So what's the principle we can learn from this? It's this right here. God's people equated religious activity with genuine faith. But God equates genuine faith with acts of justice. God's people equated religious activity with genuine faith, but God equates genuine faith with acts of justice. This, it's, it's wild stuff. I know this, this Bible. It, it, it kind of goes beyond um, what, what we would naturally think. Because to me, I'm thinking, no, what God thinks is genuine faith is when I pray a lot, uh, is when I worship a lot, is when I give lots of money, is when I you know come to church, All of those things are good. I I would actually go a step further. I believe they're essential to to, to life of following Jesus. But they're not all that God asks of us. They're just the beginning. And this this was God's critique to the people of Israel. They're in the middle of their redemption process. They start all of these beautiful religious activity that's really good. But they don't finish the work. The work starts... Um, to to the, the the rest of the work starts when we when we go in Acts of Justice. Right. Um, we have a uh, we have a rule at our house that um, we don't do screen time until rooms are cleaned, and so um, it's one of the hardest rules for me to keep. So Stacy no you just kidding. Um, our kids. <laughs> so before we do a movie night or something as a family, we're always like, okay, kids, you clean your room. But every once in a while, I'll forget and. On a recent movie time, I walked by the kid's room, and we're all cuddled on the, on the sofa, um, uh, and it's a great time. We're having a great time as a family. And I walk by the room, and I'm like, it's a disaster. It looks like a charity shop did a drop-off. It's <laughs> like, what, what, what is happening in your room? So I go downstairs, and I'm like, man, we've been having this amazing time of like family-like cuddles, and isn't this great on the sofa? But my kids haven't done what I ultimately ask them to do before we're in that space. And I think in many ways that's a kind of a micro version of what God's dealing with here because then you start to ask these questions. Okay, well, are you down here watching a film because um, you don't want to clean your room because it's uncomfortable to do that? Are, are you doing this because you really love me? Because if you really loved me, you would also love the things that I asked you to do. And that's what God's getting getting at here. You're you're saying, you're expressing love for me, but as Jesus himself said, if you love me, you will obey me. We don't like that word obedience in our our modern idea because our modern idea of love, we talked about this a few weeks ago, is affection. God's idea of love is radical, unconditional commitment. And sometimes my affections are there, sometimes they're not. But ultimately, I'm radically committed to the benefit and the welfare of another. Man, I am so glad God is that way towards me. Because there are days when I am the most unlovable person in his family. But because love to him doesn't look like affection, it doesn't doesn't look like approval, it looks like unconditional commitment... I am confident even in those days that God is is committed to me, he's pursuing me, he's coming after me and you're in the same boat. And Ramp Church, I'm not saying that it takes all of these things to step into eternity, to to, to, to know that God's love is unshakable towards me. What I'm saying is if we want to be a part of God's redemption work in the earth, we have to be people who are fully passionate and alive with religious activity and fully passionate and alive with acts yeah. of justice yeah. it, it, it's this principle right here this next one sincere acts of worship must be accompanied by intentional acts of justice it's about seeing the world rightly so i, I just real quickly want to talk about what biblical justice looks like and then we'll get practical at the end so what is biblical justice What is biblical justice? Uh, Maybe you don't realize this, but there's a lot of different ideas on what actually justice is because it depends on your ultimate vision for what what human flourishing looks like. And God's idea of human well-being and human flourishing has justice connected to it. What is biblical justice? And again, we're going to get a bit wordy, but part of the reason we... Um, we record these messages so you can go back and watch them. But the other, the other element of this is if you're not in a ramp community, then you're, you're going to disconnect yourself from understanding how do I even apply this a bit more practically? Because our midweek communities are all about going deep with one another and figuring out how do I apply some of this abstract truth to my unique situation in life. So if you think that like uh, a 30-minute message on a Sunday morning is actually going to get you across the line and joining the redemption work of God, I promise you the greatest, uh, God's um, unbelievable work in the earth takes a little bit more investment than that. And I'm not getting on to you, I'm just being real with you. It just, this is the greatest message we can possibly understand. So I want to encourage you, get in a ramp community midweek, and that's when you're going to work out one to another to go, hey, I can't figure out how how do I make this real in my own workplace, my own family. So the first idea of biblical justice from the scripture we get is this, equal treatment for all people through divine kinship. Equal treatment for all people through divine kinship. Let's go back into Isaiah 58 to understand what I mean by that. This is what the prophet is saying. Untie the cords of the yoke, set the oppressed free, break every yoke. That's that first step of the redemption process. It's, it's personal sanctification. It's untying yokes, bondages, weights, setting the oppressed free, breaking every yoke. Is it not to share your food with the hungry to provide the poor wanderer or the refugee with shelter? When you see the naked to clothe them and not to turn away from, look at this phrase, from your own flesh and blood. What is the prophet Isaiah here? He's saying the same thing Jesus would echo in the parable of, uh, of, uh, of, of the Good Samaritan. When he asked the question, who's your neighbor? And that's what is here. Who's your own flesh and blood? Anybody who has needs. Anybody. When you're looking at the world around you, we have to understand biblical justice looks at us as the human race, and there's this divine kinship. Don't say, well, who's who's my brother? Who's my sister? Why is he using that language? Because you feel responsibility for your own family. But maybe you don't feel responsibility for the person, the homeless person who sits by your, your office every day when you go to work. That's not God's perspective. God's perspective is we're all kin. There's a divine kinship. There are blood, there are flesh and our blood, and God's called us to be a people of justice, and that means equal treatment for all people through divine kinship. Every person is your brother and sister. The second thing, biblical justice means is this, unique concern. So we have concern for all peoples, equal treatment for all peoples, but we have unique concern for the needy. Those four categories we talked about, widows, orphans, uh, foreigners, refugees, and the poor. We have unique concern for the needy through divine concealment. This is one of my favorites, through divine concealment. Where do I get that phrase, divine concealment, right here from Matthew 25. Then the king, who's, who's the king in this parable? It's God. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom. What is that? That's the world in final redemption. That's when there's a new heaven and a new earth. Inherit that. Live in that. Be a part of my final picture of all of creation for all of eternity. Prepare for you from the creation of the world. For I was hungry, God says, the king says. "I, God, you're hungry. You're hungry? Surely at any moment you can just create food and satisfy yourself. For I was hungry and you fed me. I was thirsty, God said, and you gave me a drink. I was a stranger or a foreigner or a refugee and you invited me into your home. I was naked and you gave me clothing. I was sick. God, you were sick. Help me understand. I'm confused. And you cared for me. I was in prison and you visited me. Then these righteous ones will reply, Lord, when did we ever see you hungry and feed you? Or thirsty and give you something to drink? Or a stranger and show you hospitality? Or naked and give you clothing? When did we ever see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will say, I tell you the truth, when you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers and sisters, you were doing it to me. What is this? Divine concealment. Jesus, look at this principle. Here's the principle. Jesus hides himself in the needy. Jesus conceals himself in those that have needs. Some of you, maybe you've been Christians for a long time. Maybe you've had profound encounters in places of worship, uh, in gathered spaces, which I fully believe in. But you're in this season of your life where you're looking for God. You're like, where are you? I need more of you. I feel distant from you. I I wonder if sometimes in those seasons, he's hiding. He's not hiding in a church service He's hiding in someone who has needs in the world around you. He's hiding there, and Jesus Himself identified with the poor. Isn't it amazing that the King of the Universe, when He chose to come into the human story, like He was, He was born in a barn, in a feeding trough. Like He was a, He was a, a, a craftsman, a laborer. I mean. It, Think, if you were the creator of the universe, if I was the creator of the universe, I mean, first of all, I would come when they had air conditioning. I mean, A, that that would happen, period. Uh, B, I would come when they had airplanes and cars because I don't want to walk around dusty roads. But here's the king of the universe, and he decided to come at a time and in a situation where he wasn't just preaching good news to the poor, he became poor. He wasn't just preaching to those who had been betrayed, he himself was betrayed. He wasn't just preaching to those who had injuries or health problems. He succumbed to injury himself. He's not just preaching to those people. He is identifying, he is joining himself forever with the needy. Why do we need to be people of justice, Ramp Church? Why are we called to be that? Because Jesus is there. Jesus is with them. Biblical justice looks like equal treatment for all people through divine kinship, unique concern for the needy through divine concealment, and third, it looks like radical generosity in all things through divine provision. Radical generosity in all things through divine provision. I want to go back to Isaiah again, 58. Here's what Isaiah 58 says, if you spend yourselves on behalf of the hungry and satisfy the needs of the oppressed. Why? I just love that. This is, I just love that that Isaiah, God through Isaiah says yourselves and not money. Because sometimes, let's be honest, the easy option is to send money, right? I just write a check. But that's that's not what Isaiah says right here. He's saying, spend yourself. Give of your own life on behalf of the hungry. Satisfy their needs. Satisfy the needs of the oppressed. Then the Lord will guide you always. And here's where we get to the divine provision bit. Radical generosity in all things through divine provision. That when you do this, what will happen? God will satisfy your needs in a sun-scorched land. It doesn't matter the circumstances around you, your needs are gonna be met. And he'll strengthen your frame. You'll be like a well-watered garden, like a spring whose waters never fail. What is God trying to say? When we step into being a place a, a people, of justice, to bring this redemption project to our own lives and the city around us, we're also positioning ourselves to receive provision from God that as we give, we can trust. He will meet our needs. Why are we uniquely empowered to be people of justice when we are Jesus followers? Because we know that we cannot give and he not give to us to give more. This is what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount. Seek first the kingdom and his righteousness and he will, he will make sure you have everything else you need. That empowers us to be a people who meet the needs of others because we trust, it's not just up to my own effort. It's up to God. It's amazing in Western culture. One of the reasons we're a bit stingy um, with giving to others is because we have this mentality that uh, that we're self-made. Like I did this. I come from a nation that has this phrase, this idea, this ideology even called the American dream. And it's this idea that I can be whatever I wanna be. I can pull myself up by the bootstraps, it doesn't matter. The circumstances, but I'll be whatever I want to be. And in Western culture, we have this idea that what I have right now, yeah, I had a little bit of help, but most of what I have, I worked for it. I earned it. It was all because of me. And I don't need to help anybody else because if they, if, they, if, they, if they need help, they, they just need to just hop on their own self-improvement wagon, right? God has a different perspective. His, his perspective is this, you helped a little, but all you have, I gave you. That's God's perspective. God's perspective is you. I let you help a little because I love letting you help. But ultimately, all you have, your intellect, your gift set, your personalities, your your personality type, your opportunities, your parents, the street you grew up in. All of these, God gave you. The, the, The whole propensity to have the leanings that you have, the success that you have. He gave you the ability to even create a life that could create success. So how could we have this I own it mentality when, when God has given us everything we have? The Bible says every good and perfect gift has come from above. It has a source. What does that empower us to do? It empowers us then to give freely because we know the same, the same God who gave us what we have will give us more. That's how the early church lived. That's how early followers of Jesus lived because they'd seen him live the same way. What now? What now? What now? Let's get practical. Well, the first thing is, here's here's the first thing. I don't want you to wait for more. See, sometimes when we start to, to get into the topic of justice and meeting needs, we're like, I just don't have enough. Joe, you, you don't know what I and, and, and all of us go through seasons where, Stacy and I have gone through seasons like this, where we're just believing for food on the table, okay? So I'm not saying that's not a real place. I'm saying over the course of your life, the journey of your life, Let's not wait for more before we enter in to God's justice project, his redemption project. You can create a life. You can steward what you have in a way that others can be benefited by it. Ultimately, we need to order our lives in such a way that we're stewarding our resources and our privilege. I love this, in the direction of the poor and the vulnerable. This is what God does. He takes his power and he stewards it on behalf of the oppressed. In the Old Testament, when God was giving the people of Israel, they'd been slaves as a nation. They had been a nation of slaves. And God was giving them their own land. He rescued them from slavery, was giving them their own land. Um, this is what he says when, when he takes them in their own land. I, I want you to do different things with your land than the, the, the place where you used to live. I don't want you to harvest everything you planted Look, God, that doesn't make sense. I planted that. I mean, I, I paid for the seed. I, with the sweat of my brow, uh, I planted that seed. I'm going to harvest it all. God says, No. I actually want you to leave a margin around all your fields. And then, when you harvest, just go through it once. And everything else that's left, well, you need, that you, don't go through it again and harvest it. All. And that right there, the, the margins around your field and what you left over, that's for the poor, that's for the refugee, that's for the foreigner. That's for the widow, that's for the orphan. And Israel had a policy when God created the kingdom of Israel that you could go in anybody's field and get the leftovers. What, what if we lived that way, Church today? Where well, I'm not maxing out every minute of my life, every dollar that I have. I'm not, I'm not getting the biggest house I could afford or the most expensive car I could afford. I'm making sure there's margin in my life that I can steward what I've been given well so I can be a part of God's redemption project in the city that that he's put me. What would it look like? We had a whole community of people who were living with their resources pointed towards the needy. What would that look like? I, I can tell you what it would look like. It would look like God at work. Let's take this back to our beginning question. Where is God at work in the world? He is. He is at work, and maybe right now we're seeing it in individuals here and there across our city, but what would happen if an an entire church, if a whole community of people says, I want to be a part of this redemption project. I'm not gonna live to my limits. I'm not gonna consume everything I harvest. I'm gonna keep some aside for those in need. Don't wait for more. Use what you have, ramp church. The next thing is this. Don't wait for a plan. I'm a very systems thinker. That's the way I think. I think on um, systemic solutions. And so for me, when I'm looking at injustice in our world, sometimes I feel like this like this angst of like, I can't even get involved because I can't solve the problem. Right? I, I can't solve the problem. But I, pro- I, can, I can assure you, the person's problem you solve doesn't care if you've solved the problem. They're just thankful you solve them. Don't wait for a plan. We're, we're waiting for what Beatrice Webb calls social machinery. We're waiting for that social machinery that we can get involved in. And I love this from Pastor Andy Stanley, uh, who says this. Do for one what you wish you could do for everyone. Why? Because if everybody lived by this principle, the, everyone would be covered. That's what he's trying to say. And it also makes that doable. You don't have to solve, let me just let you off the hook here. You don't have to solve homelessness in Manchester, okay? There are some of you maybe who are called to do that. I'm thinking about our friends at Barnabas. Maybe you're called to do that, okay? But you as an individual, me as an everyday person, you can solve you can you can be an answer for one person, okay? Don't wait for a plan. I love what Heidi Baker says. Stop for the one. Sometimes it's just about vision to be able to see the one that I'm not seeing. When I see a homeless person, I'm not seeing homeless people. I'm seeing one. Aren't you glad that when you were the one, God stopped for you? That God didn't see me for as the kid from a broken home or the kid who, who knew nothing about religion. Aren't you glad? I'm glad that God didn't just see me as a number, a mass of people. He stopped for me, the one. Don't wait for a plan. Stop for the one. Next don't wait for a motive. Don't wait for a motive. So don't wait for more. Don't wait for a plan. Don't wait for a motive. Uh, I, I, I love this. I, I, I tried to live by this principle. When you don't feel love, do love. When you don't feel love, do love. Look what C.S. Lewis says. We read this a couple weeks ago. Don't waste time bothering whether you love your neighbor. Act as if you did. As soon as we do this, we find one of the great secrets. When you're behaving as if you love someone, you will presently come to love him. I, I think about parenting. Um, and if, if you're a parent, you know that kind of like almost spiritual connection you feel to your kids when, when they're born. But, um, there's spiritual connections maybe you feel to others. I, I think ultimately this, this like unconditional commitment parents have to kids is not just because of a spiritual connection, but what I call a sacrificial co- connection. I can still remember uh, my oldest, Claire, I can still remember, uh, she was just a few months old, walking in the middle of the night trying to get her to sleep. Just walking, pacing in our home. I can, I can assure you of one thing. I was committed to do that, but I was not, in, I was not on fire with love for her at that moment. I was like, "Oh my gosh!" Yes, this moment—it's just like this is like paradise. This is like heaven. I love being up at two in the morning, you know, with a baby who will not stop crying. Forty-five minutes now, she's still crying, and I'm still walking. I'm not—I'm not like enraptured in, in feelings of affection for my child. I'm doing a, a a loving act. That's what I'm doing. And over time, that sacrificial commitment to someone—it it births a love in our hearts that now we have affection and action. And that's what God is into. He wants to see a people who are radically committed to loving our city. Don't wait for the right motive. Start acting as if you do. I promise the motive will follow. It's gonna follow like rocking a baby in the middle of the night. Van, would you go ahead and come? I want us to end in prayer. I want to end with this thought for you and I. How can we be confident in this this redemption project that God's on? How can, maybe you're in a place right now in your life where you're you're the victim of an unjust experience. You're the victim of a broken world. Where is God in that for you personally? How can we be confident that God is going to make all things new, he's gonna bring right, he's gonna make right the things that are wrong He's going to, as Samwise Gamgee says, he's going to make all the sad things untrue. How can we have confidence in that? Because Jesus himself, God himself, succumbed, made him a slave to injustice. Jesus himself succumbed to unjust accusations, unjust criminal trial, unjust Uh, torture, unjust execution. Why did he do that? He did it because he was conquering injustice for you and for me. You see, to Jesus injustice is not just some abstract ethereal reality. It's not a concept. For Jesus injustice is something he himself wrestled with. He dove into our human condition that is filled with brokenness and injustice. He became the victim of injustice himself. And then by raising himself from the dead, by conquering death, he paid the ultimate price for injustice, thereby conquering it forever for you and for me. Why can we be confident? How can we have confidence? That what seems completely unjust right now will come into complete justice because Jesus conquered justice for you and I. I want us to sing together. I just want to invite you into a relationship with this God, this God who's on a redemption process. Maybe you've never said yes to the redemption process in your own heart and life. Today's the day. Today's the day just looks like just communicating with him saying, God, I want you to be a part of my life. I want you to be a part of my world. I no longer want to rule my own world. I I want to be in relationship with you. I want to do things your way. Forgive me for the way I've been my own God, my own King. I want to follow you, King Jesus. And I receive your forgiveness. I receive your redemption. I want to live in life to you. Maybe you've yet to engage in relational spaces that are redeeming your connection with other people. Maybe you've yet to step into compassionate engagement where you're wanting to join God in renewing spaces and groups. Or maybe you've yet to step into participation with God's work. Today's the day. Today is the day. Let's see.